So I'll ask you to turn with me to Mark 15. Mark 15. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time. The crucifixion lasted approximately six hours. And the passage we studied last week was the first three hours, from nine to noon. And what we're going to look at today is from noon to three. You may be tired of my saying it, but I'm going to keep reminding us of the theme of the Gospel of Mark. The theme of Mark is Jesus as the suffering servant and the call and cost of being his disciple. So we're focused on our suffering servant. And the key verse we covered a few months ago now is Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see that in this passage today. He is giving his life a ransom, a payment on our behalf. He is paying the penalty that we owed, the penalty for our sin. Hopefully you found your place, and I'm going to read these verses for us. Would you stand, please? I'm going to read Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that, that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we come again to this portion of your word that demonstrates for us your amazing love, your amazing provision for our salvation. And Lord, as we study it again today, remind us of your love. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of your obedience, Jesus, that brought about our salvation. Teach us something new, if that would please you, that we would see something that we have not seen before in this section. But Lord, I am trusting that your Holy Spirit will do the work you have promised of teaching your word to us and bringing things to our remembrance today. I ask that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit, that I would be bold and accurate with what I say, that your word would come through loud and clear and that you would accomplish your purposes as you see fit. Change us to be more like Jesus. Rebuke us where we need it. Encourage us where we need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. To give you a sort of outline for this section, there are five events that Mark records here. Remember, Mark is the go gospel, the action gospel. Kept having that word immediately, immediately. 
Well, today, there are five events he records in connection with these last three hours of the crucifixion. Number one, there was darkness, verse 33. Number two, Jesus cried out, verse 34. Number three, Jesus cried out a second time, verse 37. And then after he died, number four, the veil of the temple was torn, verse 38, and then the centurion spoke, verse 39. And we easily could continue. I studied it as if we were going to finish the chapter and decided that I would divide it up, and then I decided I would divide it up. If you have a study Bible, you probably noticed that we didn't quite finish that section. And we're going to pick it up there next time. But I wanted to reach verse 39. Because I believe it is the climax of this section. I believe it is the climax of Mark's gospel. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. The key phrase for today is the Son of God. We've spent two weeks looking at the King of the Jews. And now we get to this amazing statement by the centurion that he is the Son of God. And that is one of our main points. Our main points, our main ideas that I'd like you to take with you throughout this week. Number one, God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. That's verses 33 and 34. Number two, Jesus laid down his life for us. That's verse 37, and we'll look at a cross-reference in John 10 as well. And then number three, Jesus is the Son of God, verse 39. Let's look together back, beginning in verse 33, this first main point. God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. Verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. It also happens to be the time of the evening sacrifice. There was darkness. All three of the synoptic gospels. When I say synoptic gospels, if you're not familiar with that term, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic means to see together. They cover much of the same material. All three of them talk about this darkness that occurred at or around noon. There are, in fact, references to this darkness in secular Roman history as well. It says there was darkness over the whole land. That Greek wording could allow for it to be regional, and that's what I think it probably was, or it could be worldwide, it could be global. But it was certainly covering a, a long expanse, a large expanse, this darkness. Luke tells us that it was specifically due to the sun being darkened. That's Luke 23, 45. And you may think, oh, then it was an eclipse. Well, no. It was not an ordinary eclipse because... The Jewish calendar is set up so that the Passover occurs at a full moon. The moon is not in the right position to be the type of eclipse that we know of. There are other people who say, oh, it was a standstorm, or it was a very cloudy, overcast day. You understand where we live, we get storms that come through in the summertime, it gets very dark. That's not what this was. Somehow, the sun was covered or darkened. That's what Luke tells us. What was it? I don't know. But it wasn't a sandstorm. It wasn't an eclipse. It was judgment. Darkness in Scripture is associated with judgment. Some of you are already thinking in your minds with me to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus 10, 21 to 23 tells us about the ninth plague on Egypt. There it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Ninth plague on Egypt, darkness. It is a sign of judgment. What's more, darkness in Scripture 
is associated with lamentation, mourning, sadness. This is a fascinating prophecy, I think, from the book of Amos. Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at when? Noon. How about that? And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. It's talking about pulling out your hair, tearing your clothes, wearing sackcloth, things that they did when they were mourning, when they were sad, when they were lamenting. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. So it was dark, miraculously, supernaturally, unusually dark. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting Psalm 22.1. I hope you recognize it from our scripture reading. God the Father forsook Jesus the Son in that moment. Why? Why did he forsake him? Because sin causes separation from God. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had one rule, right? And God told them, do not eat of this tree because in the day that you eat thereof, what will happen? You will surely die. Thank you. You will die. Now, it wasn't saying that they were going to drop dead like of a heart attack. It was spiritual death. What is that? Separation from God. Do you see the connection here? Sin causes separation from God. We know that from Isaiah 59 too. But your iniquities, that's another word for sin, have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. He will not hear your prayers because of your sin. Why else did he cry out? Why did he recognize that he had been forsaken because God cannot look on sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You, God, are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God cannot look on sin. And what else we know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that Jesus became sin for us. God could not look. There's a sense in which he could not look on his son in that moment because God had made Jesus to be sin. The verse is, For he, God, the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. He had never sinned. He had never done anything wrong. He made him who had known no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an amazing verse. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that he who was only and always righteous could have his righteousness applied to us, that we could be clothed in his righteousness. We could be declared righteous. Our list of sins wiped out, obliterated. Righteous is written on our account. This is the only time in the Gospels where we have a prayer of Jesus recorded that he did not call his father, Father, or Abba. This is the only time in one of Jesus' recorded prayers he says, my God, my God, he's not addressing. Why? The fellowship is temporarily gone. It's broken. This is review, but back in chapter 14, Jesus prayed in the garden about the cup. 
And we said that represented three things. Hopefully you remember. It represents suffering. Well, we've certainly been seeing that in the crucifixion. We understand that. But as we read all four Gospels, the emphasis is not on his suffering. It is not gory. It is not gruesome. The emphasis instead in the Scriptures is on the separation. It is on the wrath. And that is the second part of the cup. It's suffering, it's wrath, and then it is separation. Now, in those hours, Jesus was experiencing the bitterness and agony of that cup. For the first and only time ever, the Father and the Son were separated, and Jesus felt abandoned. But let's not misunderstand. When I say that Jesus felt abandoned, the Father had not left the scene. God the Father was not gone. He did not go back to heaven somehow and and leave his Son. It's not that type of abandonment. We know from the verses we just read, God the Father could not look on sin, but he was there the entire time. How do we know that? Once again, I'm going to direct our attention to Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to read parts of verses. You can turn there if you want to. But in Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 6 says, the Lord, that's big and small cap, that's Yahweh, the Lord has laid on him, that's the suffering servant, Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Who laid that on Jesus? The Father. Verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to bruise Jesus. He, God the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When you, God the Father, make his, Jesus' soul, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Verse 11 continues. He, Yahweh, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. God the Father was very much present at the cross, pouring out his wrath, justified wrath, against sin, against wickedness, against iniquity. Because the Son had done anything wrong? No. Because every one of your sins, just think, for a second, don't spend a long time on this, but think for a few seconds, how many sins did you commit this week? How many this year? How many have you committed over a lifetime? All of it was put on Jesus. He became sin for us. And all of the wrath against all of that sin was poured out on Jesus. And he was temporarily separated from the Father and he felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. When you feel abandoned by God, when you feel like he's distant, when you can't sense his presence, please remember that he's still there. How do I know that? Because he promised, I am with you always. He promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, if there is sin in our lives, then there is separation. There is a breach, a brokenness in the fellowship. And 1 John and other passages instruct us, we need to confess our sin. But then we have that fellowship back. He never leaves. He never forsakes. Because Jesus was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. You understand that. 
Verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid reading that, he didn't say Elijah. Why are you talking about Elijah? What are they talking about? There are a few possibilities. First, the words sounded similar in the original languages. It could be that those who stood by were too far away to hear him well, or he may have been too weak at that point to be heard well if they were any distance away. Second, the Jews had a superstition that because Elijah never died, they could call out for him to save them in times of deep distress. It's a superstition, but some people believed it. Maybe that's what they thought was going on. Probably it's the third thing. Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah, so they are mocking Jesus, yet another group, mocking Jesus by saying that maybe his forerunner, maybe Elijah will come and save him and take him down from the cross. Verse 36, then someone came, someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. You can read a little bit more about that in the other accounts. But this sour wine mentioned, or, or vinegar wine, it was cheap wine. It's what the soldiers drank. And the soldiers may have been trying to prolong Jesus' life, prolong his suffering by giving him something to drink. And once again, they unknowingly fulfilled prophecy. Because Psalm 69, 21 says, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Second main idea for this morning. Jesus laid down his life for us. It was voluntary. Verse 37 says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. All three of the synoptic gospels say that he cried out with a loud voice, but none of the three says what he cried with a loud voice. For that, we have to go to John. Because I believe what he cried at that moment was, in Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. Look at John 19, 28 to 30. It's on the screen behind me. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Well, that's what we just read about in Mark. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That's the parallel account. I believe he got that sour wine because we read in Psalm 22 that his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. He could not talk. Part of the crucifixion process, we've said, it was dehydration. But by getting his lips, his mouth wet again, by drinking a little bit of something, he could then cry out in victory with a loud voice. It says Jesus breathed his last. He voluntarily gave up his spirit. The parallel in Luke says, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So this was Jesus' decision. It was his timing. It was his choice. He 
laid down his life because, we read it a minute ago, John 19, 28, all things were accomplished. He knew everything that God the Father had given him to do was complete. He had predicted this. John 10, words of Jesus, therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. That's important too, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. It was his choice. We'll see in a minute. It was very unusual for someone being executed by crucifixion to die that quickly. Crucifixions were not normally measured by hours. They were measured by days. And yes, he had been through great physical torture. I, I realize that. But it was his decision to die at the appointed time. Also in John's gospel, Jesus promised to draw all people to himself through his death. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Here's the verse, John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's referring to crucifixion, will draw all peoples to myself. It's a promise. He's saying, when I am crucified, I will draw people to me. And that's still being fulfilled today. Some of you are aware that recently we opened a new storage unit for church. We wanted to have something that's closer to the new building, much more convenient. So Phil and Tony took care of that. And thankfully, Phil Sr. gave me the gate code. He gave me a key also. But I had my van filled earlier this week with stuff from the other storage unit, and I got there, and it took me a minute to figure out what he had given me and when I pressed star and pound and other things. But he gave me the access code. Because even though I had a key to my unit, that didn't do me any good because I had to gain access through the gate. And that word, access, I believe is key to what we're talking about right now in this section of this gospel. Verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this veil could be the inner or outer veil, but I believe it's the inner veil to the Holy of Holies. Again, all three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, mention this, that the veil of the temple was torn. This veil was a thick curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, and only the high priest could enter. Only he could go behind that veil, and he could do so only on one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. That's in Leviticus 16, if you want to track that down. And then he had to follow a bunch of very specific rules. And it says there, the veil was torn. That's a passive verb. We aren't told who did it. From top to bottom. Well, that suggests who did it. The veil in Herod's temple was approximately 60 feet high. And Jewish tradition says that it was as thick as a man's hand. It was four or five inches thick. This was a very thick. It wasn't just a sheer curtain. It was thick. Only God could have torn that veil apart, and only he could have done it starting from 60 feet in the air. You would kind of think he's proving a point somehow. What is the point? Let's talk about it. The point, I believe, is that we are changing the message. Instead of keep out, we are going to come in. We're going from the message of keep out to come in. What do you mean by that? In many ways, the message of the tabernacle and then later the temple was keep out. Gentiles could go only so far. Women could go only so far. Men who weren't priests could go only so far. 
And priests who weren't the high priest could go only so far. So for the most part, people did not have access to God. They had to keep out. But now, Jesus is the new and living way for us to enter the presence of God. He invites us to come in because of what he's done. We read about it in Hebrews, men, in our Bible study this summer. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, sound familiar? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near. This tells us that Jesus' flesh symbolizes the veil. Just as the high priest, and only the high priest, had to come into God's presence through the veil, so we can come into God's presence through Christ's sacrifice. And anyone can come, but only through Christ. He is the door. In this sense, he is the veil. So if the torn veil means open access, open invitation to anyone who wants to come to God, who responded to the invitation? Who came? Well, the centurion and possibly some priests. Remember, the darkness lasted from noon to 3 p.m. So Jesus died approximately 3 p.m. I said it earlier in passing, that's the time of the evening sacrifice. If you're thrown off by evening, there were two evenings in Jewish thinking. One was late afternoon and one was after sunset. The book of Acts tells us in chapter 6, verse 7, that many priests believed it is possible, I cannot prove this, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think it's possible, if not likely, that maybe some of these priests, because there would have been many priests there for the afternoon sacrifice, saw the veil torn. Tradition tells us that the priests later sewed it back up. But they were there, and they witnessed it, and they saw it torn. Maybe some of them were the many priests, according to Acts 6-7, who believed Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That's our third and last point for today. Jesus is the son of God. Who's a centurion? A centurion is a Roman officer in charge of 100 soldiers. That's where we get the name. On that particular day, this centurion was in charge of Jesus' execution. He would have overseen the four soldiers who carried out the execution. What's interesting to me is that earlier, Jesus had prayed for his executioners. Do you remember? Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In answer to Jesus' prayer, it seems that this man placed his faith in Jesus. What does it say about him? He saw that Jesus cried out like this. I'm assuming that that's, it is finished. And breathed his last. Likely, this centurion had witnessed many crucifixions. He was an expert on this. He was accustomed to what victims said or didn't say. 
If they said anything, I'm guessing they probably cursed their accusers or their executioners or even God himself. But since breathing was so difficult, they probably didn't waste words either. But as the God-man, Jesus was different in every way. He had prayed for his executioners. He had made provision for his mother. And now at the end, he shouted in victory, It is finished! No one else had ever done that. That centurion, however many executions he had overseen, he never would have seen anything like that. He had never heard anything like that. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. How did he know to say that? It's possible that he heard the accusation at the trial before Pilate. That's in John 19, 7. The religious authorities were talking about him claiming to be the Son of God. But he definitely heard it from the bystanders. Because those mocking him, according to Matthew 27, were talking about him being the Son of God. He, He claimed to be the Son of God. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. What did he mean by it? We don't know for sure. He probably didn't have a full understanding of the theological import of what he was saying. I realize that. But then again, I didn't fully understand either when I was four years old and I prayed to receive Christ. I couldn't have explained in detail what it meant that he was the son of God. But God saved me anyway. And like the dying thief, he definitely believed that Jesus was more than a mere man condemned to die. By his own statement, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And I personally believe that like the dying thief, he was saved. This statement made by the centurion is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. This is where Mark has been headed since the very first verse. He has been leading up to this moment. So I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I want to review it with you. No, we're not going to read all 14 chapters, okay? But some of you have seen movies, perhaps, where maybe it's a mystery, and you get toward the end, and things are coming together, and they'll do a little flashback and show this scene and that scene. This is how it all fits together. That's this moment in Mark. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark 1.11, at Jesus' baptism. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Mark 3.11, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the Son of God. Mark 5.7, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Mark 9.7, and a cloud came and answered A cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. At the transfiguration, God again says, this is my beloved son. Mark 14, 61. But he kept silent and answered nothing, that's Jesus. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In the statements I just read from Mark's gospel, Mark has written that Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father has announced that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons have recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. The high priest has asked whether Jesus is the Son of God. But in the Gospel of Mark, a Gentile centurion is the first human being to say with his lips, surely, this is the Son of God. 
Now, who do we think were the recipients of the book of Mark? Probably Gentiles, probably in Rome. And in my own imagination, at least, they got to that point and a Gentile. What did he say? If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And it seems that post-crucifixion, this may have been the first one. Truly, this is the Son of God. Today we focused on the second half of the crucifixion, which describes Jesus' death. Next time, Lord willing, we'll study his burial, and then the week after that, the resurrection. But for today, God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us. And Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died to save you from your sin? Have you called on him to save you? From the youngest to the oldest in this room, anyone online, you can call on him. You can cry out to him. You can pray to him, God, forgive me. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the Savior of the world, and he will save you. It's not any harder than that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in God. Believers. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. 1 Peter tells us that Christ died to bring us to God. Hebrews tells us that we have access to the throne room of heaven because of Jesus' shed blood. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So ask yourself these three questions. Am I entering? Am I entering boldly? Am I entering often? Because of what Jesus did, the veil is torn and we have access. And yet, so much of the time, we just go about our lives as if he's not there. We can enter, and we can enter boldly, and we can come as often as we want, and when we need wisdom, he will not turn us away. But are we doing that? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to take just a moment to allow you to talk with God. Is there something that he is speaking to you about, something specific that he's leading you to do or to confess? Maybe you've been encouraged by this today. Thank him. Praise him.
Our God, you are so good. I thank you that I can come into your presence by prayer in this moment because of the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sin to bring me to you. Thank you for the fellowship that we have because of your finished work. Thank you, Jesus, for taking all of my sin and all the sins of my fellow believers on yourself. Your blood is sufficient to atone for every sin. Lord, we have access to enter in because of what you've done for us. Please help us to do it. There are so many distractions in the world around us that keep us from fellowship with you. May we be quick to confess sin. May we be quick to restore fellowship. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet called on you for salvation, may today be that day. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great sacrifice. Thank you that it is finished. Thank you that you've done away with our sin. Thank you that you have given us eternal life by grace through faith. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.